0: birds
1: made possible by the generous support of the bird watchers general store or leanscape cod bird watchers general store.com by ll bean inspiring you to get outdoors LLBean.com by celestron offering binoculars and scopes for birders of all levels celestron.com by birds and beans shade grown bird friendly coffee birds and and by Chimani. Visiting a national park? Let Chimani guide you. Chimani.com.
2: Good morning. Welcome to our show number 616, live here on the last full day of winter, 2017. And speaking of special days. Happy birthday to our National Wildlife Refuge System which came into being 114 years ago this week when President Theodore Roosevelt created the first refuge in 1903 at Pelican Island, Florida. Today, the system is the world's largest network of conservation lands and waters with more than 850 million acres. That calls for more happy birthday music there, I think. Along with 566 national wildlife refuges and 38 wetlands management districts from Alaska wilderness to Montana's native grasslands and from Texas lagoons to woods and ponds within the city limits of Philadelphia. By the way, we're hoping to take our Talking Birds show to more national wildlife refuges in the coming year. Well, in 2016 we broadcast our show from several national parks, not to be confused with national wildlife refuges including Grand Canyon, Yosemite, and Acadia. And we're happy to report that our little group added just a little bit to help the parks break their record of 331 million recreational visits in 2016, the year that marked the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service. Those record numbers enhanced by a lot of great things they did, like the Every Kid in a Park initiative, and maybe, just maybe, by those on-site Talking Birds Show broadcasts.
3: Extra extra read all about it.
2: Here are some of the stories and videos we have for you on our Facebook page this week. Read all about it. Planning to trim your shrubs and trees this fall? Might be a good idea to check for hummingbird nests before you start clipping. Those nests are really small and easy to miss and the eggs are about the size of jelly beans. We have a photo to demonstrate along with some fascinating facts on our page. And by the way, we'll have a special guest to talk about the topic of bird-friendly plantings on next week's show. Speaking of shrubs, researchers say that as Arctic tundra shrubs grow taller as the climate warms, many bird species may find the habitat unsuitable. We'll link you to the story on our Facebook page. And man's best friends are aiding in conservation efforts around the world. Detection dogs, conservation canines, if you will, are helping biologists find invasive species on some islands off the coast of New Zealand. And we'll connect you to that story as well. Some of what we have for you on our Talking Birds Facebook page right now. Meanwhile, a quick note about our Talking Birds electronic newsletter that we call The Trumpeter. New edition coming out soon. You can sign up. It's free on our website, TalkingBirds.com, or on our Facebook page. And on our website, just go to the, the big subscribe button right at the top. And did you know that March is try a pod month, as in try listening to a podcast? You can listen to one of ours via the blog button on our website, TalkinBirds.com. And by the way, thanks to our friends at the American Bird Conservancy for including us among their podcast recommendations on a recent Twitter feed. And now one clue as a preview of today's Mystery Bird Contest, which we'll present later in the show. So this will kind of get you ready for it. Here's one clue. Our mystery bird is a small songbird with a yellow head and yellow underparts, an olive green back, a black line through the eye, and bluish-gray wings with two white wing bars. And it sounds like this. Kind of a quiet bird. That's our preview of the mystery bird contest coming a little later in the show. Now our scariest conservation-related quote of the week. It's from new Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt. Who said in reference to carbon dioxide's effect on global warming, quote, I think that measuring with precision human activity on the climate is something very challenging to do, and there's tremendous disagreement about the degree of impact. So no, I would not agree that it's a primary contributor to the global warming that we see. End quote. Mr. Pruitt's comments seem to be pretty much in clear opposition to nearly all scientists worldwide who agree that greenhouse gases emitted by human activities like burning fossil fuels is the primary driver of climate change and that includes Mr. Pruitt's own agency which has said that human-admitted carbon dioxide is the primary greenhouse gas that is contributing to recent climate change. Well some Talking Birds listeners in the great American West have really stepped up this week for our ambassadors program and we offer great thanks to new Talking Birds ambassadors Tim in Jackson, Wyoming. Our first Ambassador from the Equality State, a.k.a. the Cowboy State. Thank you, Tim. Christopher in Albion, California, just northwest of Sacramento in the Golden State. Thank you, Christopher. And thanks to Ryan from Pocatello, Idaho, our first ambassador from the GEM State. Ryan tells us he's currently studying biology in Utah and doing research on woodpecker nesting in the Cascade Mountain Range of Washington State. So he's getting around out there. And he has the distinction, at least we like to call it that, of being our 100th Talking Birds ambassador. Yeah. A little celebration there. Thank you, Ryan. A quick visit to our Facebook page will provide a complete list of our now 35 ambassador states. Talking Birds listeners, kindly do check to see if your state is listed there and consider representing it. If it isn't, of course, whether your state is listed or not, we hope you'll join our ambassadors program. Just hand out some of our info cards to your friends and associates to spread the word about our show and birds and conservation. Easy to sign up for, too. Just click the contact button at TalkingBirds.com and choose the Become an Ambassador option. Still to come in our show today, we'll talk with a climate change expert direct for Mass Audubon's annual birders meeting at UMass Boston, shores of Boston Harbor. Daniel Brown, no relation. Mass Audubon's Climate Change Program Coordinator will be with us. Plus, we'll catch up with our man, Mike O'Connor, in our Let's Ask Mike segment. who will explain something about the amazing color transition of this familiar backyard bird. The American goldfinch. And up next, a very, very small owl with a taste for scorpions is today's featured feathered friend. Talking Birds is made (laughs) possible in part... By Celestron, a leading optics company offering binoculars and spotting scopes for birders of all levels. Celestron is dedicated to education and bird conservation and proudly supports many nonprofit organizations that share the same commitment. Celestron says we care about birds and nature in our backyard as well as yours. Enhance your view with Celestron. Visit Celestron.com and discover more. When is an owl an elf? when it's an elf-owl. Duh. By weight, not quite an ounce and a half, a little less than a golf ball, the elf-owl is the smallest owl in the world. It's less than six inches tall, mostly gray or grayish-brown with big yellow eyes, highlighted by thin white eyebrows, a facial disc bordered by a thin black line, no ear tufts and fairly long legs that present a bow-legged appearance. The elf owl is found in the U.S. in the woodlands and desert cactus habitats of southwest Texas and southern Arizona. They return from their wintering grounds in Mexico to these territories in late February and early March to nest, often in woodpecker holes in the tree-like saguaro cactus. They're most active at dusk, hunting for beetles, crickets and spiders, sometimes lizards and mice, and even scorpions. Like other owls, elf owls have excellent night vision and acute hearing, which allows them to catch prey in complete darkness, while the sound of their flight is muffled by their specialized, softened wing feathers. Elf owls are usually not aggressive, and when danger approaches, they'll often play dead until the threat subsides. The tiny, bow-legged, Scorpion eating dead playing elf owl Microsine, whitney quitney today's talking birds featured feathered friends. Thanks again for being with us. Our show number 616. Talkin' birds is sponsored in part by Chimani, providing free outdoor mobile app travel guides to plan and navigate your journey to more than 400 national parks, monuments, and historic sites. From Acadia to Zion, go to Chimani.com, that's C-H-I-M-A-N-I.com, to download your free app today. Well, Daniel Brown is the Climate Change Program Coordinator for Massachusetts Audubon, and we're going to speak to him in a second here, right from the Mass Audubon Annual Birders Meeting over there at the University of Massachusetts Boston campus on the shores of Boston Harbor. Good morning, Daniel. Morning, Ray. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I just saw one of our uh, posts that our Debbie Bleacher put up there. Looks like there's a good crowd there at the birders' meeting.
4: There is, yeah. We've got the room at capacity. Uh, it's it's a great group. I was like... Uh, Talking with, interacting with
2: birders. It's it's a real treat. (laughs) Well, Daniel, tell us a little bit about your background, if you would, in the area of climate change.
4: Yeah, so I I have a physical science background. So I came up through uh, physics, nuclear science, uh, switched to atmospheric science and studied at Oregon State. I worked with the Oregon Climate Change Research Institute for a while, then worked with the University of Michigan uh, Climate Center and then uh, am now at Mass Audubon. So I've kind of migrated eastward across the country as the years have gone on.
2: And using that birding terminology there for your traveling. That's right. (laughs) Well, tell me if I have this right. You're working on a new State of the Birds report. Am I right that as you were working on this, you really began to see connections with birds and the effect of climate change? Do I have that roughly right?
4: Yeah, that's correct. so there have been a few really good uh, reports, uh, comprehensive reports on climate change and the effects on birds. Most notably, the National Audubon Society, uh, you know, looked at over 300 species on the brink, threatened by climate change uh, in North America. So that their study was was one that we really, uh, really built upon and looked at what are what are the effects of climate change on birds specifically in New England and Massachusetts. Uh, and really tried to get a sense for uh, what habitats those birds need, what conditions birds in Massachusetts need, and is there a realistic possibility that those those habitats and conditions will exist elsewhere in the future, mm-hmm. uh, or looking farther south, would there be conditions suitable for for bird species that are typically found farther south? So we we really tried, I think, to build on uh, the great work that National Audubon had done before, and really try to tailor that information. Uh, to Massachusetts, and it, it really helped us, I think, identify um, you know, a, a couple key trajectories, a couple key themes. Uh, the first is that about half of the bird species that we're looking at in Massachusetts, about half of the breeding birds, uh, are expected to experience some type of, of negative disruption. Uh, so it's about half. Uh, maybe they're losing their footprint, maybe they're shifting to the habitats that are that are less optimal. Uh, we're still in the process of trying to figure out uh, what that means and how to classify all those different changes. Uh, and then the other, the other, I think, key theme we really found is that you know there are really three different factors um, from a climate perspective that that really matter to, to birds in Massachusetts. And and there are a lot of different effects out there, uh, but there are really three for Massachusetts that that could matter. The first is warming temperatures. Mm-hmm uh... that's driving shifts in ecosystems and, and a whole bunch of different ways. uh... the second is sea level rise. So our coastal nesting birds uh, could potentially be the most affected uh, due to sea level rise. And then the other one is is the big unknown, uh, but has a potential to be a, an enormous factor is change in ocean acidification. Hmm. Uh, it's often left out of discussions with climate change, but our oceans are becoming more acidic. Uh, and that has the potential to really disrupt food webs, particularly for seabirds.
2: And certainly uh, some of this can be extrapolated, Daniel, to other, other parts of North America, maybe not the sea level part so much, but you also talk about things like storm intensity.
4: That's right. Uh, so in the Northeast, you know, our, our storms have gotten uh, more intense, more severe, uh, more frequent. Uh, we're seeing more of our precipitation come in big gulps rather than a lot of small sips, uh, we've seen a 71% increase in the amount of rain falling in these, these biggest storms that, that almost always leave some type of lingering damage. Uh, so when you think about sensitive habitats, that certainly can, can be a factor as well. Uh, and that, that is, is somewhat of a distinct New England uh, change that we've seen such a big change in storms like that, but we are also seeing that farther south. Uh, and across the Great Lakes region as well.
2: Well, I read a piece uh, recently, I think we spoke about this uh, the other day, uh, uh, Daniel, about uh, Svalbard. And speaking of rain falling, the Svalbard, the group of islands there between Norway and the North Pole, where this fall they were getting rain instead of snow and there are some... Really serious impacts there. I wonder if you could say, you know, what an indicator, how much of an indicator is is this place, Svalbard, uh, for climate yeah. change implications? Yeah,
4: it, it's, it's, it's really a strong indicator. Uh, it's one of the places uh, that climatologists often look to as, as a sign for things to come. Uh, we can also look at Alaska that's been experiencing incredible warm temperatures over the last few years, uh, and that's, that's part of a larger trend that we're seeing around the globe, which is that uh, temperatures closer to the poles are changing more rapidly uh, than they are near the equator. And there's probably a few reasons for that. One is that you're losing reflective ice cover, uh, and you're replacing it with often uh, land cover that's pretty dark and absorptive. So It's, it's the blacktop effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, put your hand over blacktop, and you can feel that it gets much warmer than grass on a hot day. Uh, So there's that. And we see that effect actually in in the northeast as well, to a lesser extent, uh, in New England, where we've warmed faster than uh, the national and global rate uh, over the last 100, 150 years or so. So yeah, northern areas, uh, certainly a very strong indicators of change to come.
2: Indeed. Well, Daniel, what can we do? Anything, uh, if anything, as individuals, as community groups to... Cope with climate change and maybe even do something about it.
4: Yeah, so so I remain actually guardedly optimistic uh, about climate change. Uh, it is an enormous challenge. Uh, it's one that's going to require global solutions. Uh, but the good news is that when we think about our communities, uh, whether that be you know Seattle, Boston, uh, you know somewhere in the Great Plains, we have great agency um, to to impact our communities for the better in terms of wildlife. Uh, you know, If we think about how much of a voice we have at the national scale, um, you know, our, our, each of our individual voices accounts, accounts for very little, so it takes a lot of votes to, to really change policy to protect wildlife, to prepare for climate change. But if we operate in our communities, so if you go to your local land trust, really figure out what land needs to be protected uh, to reduce stressors on birds, uh, you can have a great impact that way. Uh, the other really simple thing you can do to avoid climate change at large is try to switch your electric bill over to renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Massachusetts we have a great program called uh, Make the Switch uh, through Mass Energy uh, and that's a great way that you can, can immediately re- reduce the emissions from your home. Uh, so yeah, looking at local land trust, how do you preserve areas in your community to, to reduce stresses on birds, and then how do we reduce our own emissions. Uh, And both of those things can add up to a, a very big positive
2: impact. Daniel Brown is Climate Change Program Coordinator for Mass Audubon, Massachusetts Audubon. Daniel, thanks for being with us and keep up your important work. Thanks so much, Ray. Coming up next year, it's our mystery bird contest in just one minute. If you've listened to Talking Birds over the past several weeks, you may have heard us talking about our upcoming trip to the Galapagos Islands. And guess what? The guest list is now almost full. So if you'd like to join us, and we hope you will, the time to sign up is now. We'll travel with our friends from Sunrise Birding, one of the world's finest small group touring companies. Get all the details right now at sunrisebirding.com. That's sunrisebirding.com.
1: Here's an idea for the next time you're shopping for wild bird food. Look for the Audubon Park brand, a top choice among bird lovers for more than 40 years. All of Audubon Park's products meet the highest quality standards in the industry and have earned early compliance with the FDA's Food Safety Modernization Act. And Audubon Park products are easy to find at your supermarket, lawn and garden store, farm and feed market, and online retailers. For more information, visit AudubonPark.com.
2: Talking Birds is made possible in part by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Please check them out at birds.cornell.edu. Are you eligible on our mystery bird contest? Why, yes, you are if you haven't won here within the past six months. And all you have to do is call us and tell us what the bird is or take a guess. Even if your guess is not exactly correct, you could still be the winner because a drawing will determine the winner. Um, If no correct, exactly correct answer is received. Take all what I just said, make a sentence out of it, and uh, give us a call, 781-837-4900. Here's the sound of our mystery bird. If that doesn't help, we'll give you some more clues here, but first we'll tell you the prize. It's the Droll Yankees original, iconic A6F classic tube feeder, invented by... Droll Yankees founder Peter Killen back in 1969 and copied around the world and now brought back by popular demand. It's squirrel-proof, too. Uh, has metal parts that squirrels can't chew. Backed by lifetime warranty against squirrel damage. And proudly made in the USA. Our mystery bird is a small songbird with a yellow head and underparts, an olive green back, a black line through the eye, and bluish-gray wings with two white wing bars. Our bird is found in woodland open areas and forest clearings, where its food consists mainly of insects. It famously hybridizes with another small songbird to produce a species with the first name Brewster. All right, that's our mystery bird. Tell us what it is, or take your guess at 781-837-4900. Meanwhile, we'll find out something really interesting about a a very popular backyard bird when we talk with Mike
3: O'Connor, in our Let's Ask Mike Live segment in just one minute. More than 100 million wild animals are killed each year illegally. Poaching is just one of the risks animals face at our hands. I'm Tom Barry, I'm an actor. I grew up in the beautiful rural countryside of Ohio where animals roamed freely in the open forests. I have a deep concern to help preserve those open spaces for our wildlife friends so they can live and thrive like they used to. Destruction of their habitats threaten their very existence. The best way to protect wildlife is to protect the land where they live. The Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust works with private landowners to protect wildlife, to preserve natural habitats, and establish permanent sanctuaries. To learn more or to work with the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust, call 800-729-SAVE. That's 800-729-SAVE, or visit wildlifelandtrust.org. Thank you.
2: Well, you're welcome, Tom. We're going to go now to Cape Cod, Massachusetts, the town of Orleans, and the famous Bird Watchers General Store, and our man Mike O'Connor,
0: is down there, I'm pretty sure. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Ray, and it's the last day of winter, but guess what? Here on the elbow of the Cape, it's actually snowing.
2: Wow. Yeah, That's yeah. it
0: looks like, you know, it's that big fat snow like your mo- the old days when your mother would shake the dry mop out the window. <laughs> it's all coming down.
2: Yeah, she still does that. But um, <laughs> that must be ocean effect snow because you said many times it doesn't really snow.
0: No, on Cape no, this is, this is yeah. pretend snow. Pretend this snow. Disappear. It will disappear. never okay. snows on the Cape.
2: Well, uh, Mike, we mentioned uh, briefly earlier about this bird that we are hearing singing right now, the American... Goldfinch, and this bird does something. What that other? Well, at least other finches don't do right when spring comes around.
0: That's right. It, it, it it's different than the other finches. All our other finches molt, and all birds molt. They all molt typically in the fall after the breeding season. They have to get new feathers. But the goldfinches was is unique that it also molts in the spring. Other warblers and stuff get into their breeding plumage, but finches typically don't. Hmm. But special about the goldfinches is they is you know when we all think that uh you know we wake up one morning and oh look at all the yellow goldfinches are back well they have never left and they've been going through this process since february so even though we've we've had winter and you know everything seems to be delayed the goldfinches have been working this process and if you look at them you can see a little black showing up on their cap and then i just saw a finch landed on on my feeder and it's still kind of drab green but there's some spots look like it's busy. Eating a hot dog with too much uh, mustard on it because it's got all these bright <laughs> yeah, yellow. The
2: yellow mustard. Right. The yellow Not mustard.
0: The <laughs> That's right. Not that. Not
2: that the gray coupon. Fringes, yeah.
0: Bright yellow mustard, and they're going through this process, and as a result, um, they they think one of the reasons why goldfinches nest later in the year is because of it takes a lot of energy, and hmm. goldfinches, God bless them, a strict vegetarian. Yeah. So they need, it, t- it takes a lot more seeds to produce more energy than than the insect eaters like the warblers.
2: Yeah, and so they, they even feed seeds to the the chicks, if I'm not mistaken, which is another unusual thing, right? Well, as you yeah, said, they're all vegetarian.
0: That, that, that's right. And 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 the interesting part is when they get uh, when they when cowbirds drop a few eggs in a goldfinch nest, uh, the cowbirds typically don't survive because mm. they're not into this vegetarian thing. Oh, yeah. So the goldfinches chicks. Thrive, but when they when the cowbirds get fed seeds, they don't. It doesn't usually work out for them. Very wow, well.
2: I never thought of that. Yes, <laughs>
0: but anyways, you'll be watching them, and, and as you look at your goldfinches now, it's a slow process, and they call it a partial molt because the uh, the wings and tail don't molt, but just the body and and around the head. And as you look out at your goldfinches now, it's kind of nice, especially at least here when it's all wintry and you see, everything looks drab. You see all these bright blotches going on. And this this process will go all the way until May, and and then they'll Good look on. beautiful oh. yet again. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> bright blotches. I love Great it. Bright blotches. All right, Mike. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you next week. Sounds groovy. All right, Mike O'Connor there at the Birdwatchers General Store, Orleans. Cape Cod, the world's most famous bird-watching store. Back here at the Mystery Bird Contest, trying to identify this mystery bird. It's a small songbird with a yellow head and underparts, an olive green back, a black line through the eye, and bluish-gray wings with two white wing bars. Our bird is found in open woodland areas and forest clearings where its food consists mainly of insects. It famously hybridizes with another small songbird to produce a species with the first name... Brewster. That's our mystery bird. Our prize is the Droll Yankees original iconic A6F classic tube feeder. Uh, What do you think our mystery bird is? Tell us or take your guess at um, 781-837-4900. That's 781-837-4900. And I believe we have Laura in beautiful Charlotte, North Carolina where I'm sure spring has already arrived. Good morning, Laura.
4: Good morning, Ray it's been spring here, but we did get <laughs> snow
2: this week too. <laughs> you did. All right, okay. Thank you for making us feel a little better about how things are up here right now. Only an inch though. Only <laughs> only an inch. Okay. <laughs> well, we don't have too much snow around here right now, but I think we have a little bit more coming. But so Laura, you heard the clues on our uh, on our mystery bird there and the sound. what do you what do you say? It's a blue wing warbler. That was no hesitation there. Yeah, that wasn't even a question, was it? That was no, that was a statement. Blue-winged warbler, yes, uh, that hybridizes with the uh, golden-winged warbler, which is a bird that has practically disappeared, sad to say. Um, and there, are I, some, there
4: are some in the North Carolina mountains. That's where I've seen
2: them. Uh, golden wings. Yep. Ah, very nice. All right. Well, uh, Laura, thank you so much. And uh, you're in um, you're in Charlotte, but uh, close to close to that area where you see those warblers. Yes. All right. Well, hang on the line there, Char- uh, L- Laura. How many times you've been called Charlotte?
1: Uh, only on your show.
2: Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Stay on the line. We'll get your, your address and send you that feeder. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Laura. Hey, we're just about out of time. You know where we're going now? We're heading back to the, uh, the UMass uh, uh, campus in Boston to the Mass Audubon Birders Meeting. And uh, please be with us next week, especially if you're going to do some planting in your garden this spring. Uh, Because if you're going to do that, why not plant things that bring birds to your yard? And if you'd like some great free advice on how to do it, well, be with us for next week's Talkin' Birds show, when we'll welcome National Audubon Plants for Birds program leader, Todd Winston, as our special guest right here on Talkin' Birds. And happy spring. Executive producer Mark Duffield. Our associate producer is Debbie Bleacher. Our engineer is Tim McKenney. I'm Ray Brown. See you next week.
1: And by Chimani. Visiting a national park? Let Chimani guide you. Chimani.com.